Yeah, of course, you can record it, but I can't give you permission to distribute it. As I was saying before, the recorder got turned on. I think the best way to answer those questions is just to read you all the better part of a long letter I wrote recently. I'll probably make editorial comments along the way just to make sure you all know what I'm talking about, and I probably will edit the quotes slightly for the sake of clarity. And I'll skip the personal parts of the letter. Uh, for the mystery of iniquity already worketh. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. For some years now, I've been anticipating that each one of us will find himself uh, faced with a decision like that forced upon those Londoners of so long ago. Consider this reflection on, quote, John Finnis's account of Thomas More's refusal in 1534 to swear the oath pledging acceptance of the act of succession. After morning mass, he said goodbye to his family and went to Lambeth Palace, then as now the Archbishop of Canterbury's residence. The commissioners for the administration of the oath had summoned that Monday morning a large number of London clergy and one layman, Moore. It was Moore who was called in first. He silently read through the act of succession and the oath drawn up under the great seal and refused to swear that oath. After failing to get him to state his reasons, the commissioners sent him from the room to reflect. Out of the windows of another room of the palace, looking into the garden below, he could see, as doubtless he was meant to, the clergy of London passing through the garden. Most were cheerful enough, slapping each other on the back and calling for beer at the archbishop's buttery. All took the oath, save one who was hurried through the gate on his way to the tower, where he would languish for three years until he accepted the Reformed and Protestant order. Put yourself in the place of these priests, not scholars, not canonists, just good-natured, ordinarily timid clergymen who didn't want to get in trouble over an obscure point of doctrine. When they offered Mass that Monday morning, they were Catholics. When they said Vespers the same evening, they were Protestants. Yet the moment of decision passed with a laugh and a shrug. To all but a few that lay faithful, things looked much as they had before. They came to church the following Sunday to find the same pastors with the same smiles and the same reassuring jokes. In fact, it was some years before the flocks that followed their priests into schism clearly realized what had happened, realized that they were no longer in union with Peter. For many, it wasn't until their priests married that they understood things were under new management. Close quote, Father Paul Mankowski. When they offered Mass that Monday morning, they were Catholics. When they said Vespers the same evening, they were Protestants. Yet the moment a decision passed with a laugh and a shrug. That line haunts me. Will our moment of decision pass with a laugh and a shrug? But before we get to that, let's put the current situation in the church into context. We'll start with the spectacle of Friday, October 4th, 2019 in the Vatican Garden, that unbelievably sacrilegious satanic horror. From a LifeSite news article written by the great Stephen Mosier, a Stanford-trained anthropologist, best-selling author and the founder of Population Research Institute. Quote, Much has been written about the disturbing shamanistic ritual that was carried out in the Vatican Gardens, but a number of details have been overlooked, including Pope Francis's role in the ritual. The ritual was presented as a tree-planting ceremony celebrating St. Francis of Assisi's love of nature, but this was just a smokescreen. During the course of the ritual, Pope Francis received and blessed a Pachamama idol, and was given a pagan necklace, 
an offering of soil to Pachamama, and a tukum ring. Just think about what we just... It's just incredible. The Pope supervised and participated in a pagan ritual during the course of which he blessed an image of a demon. The tukum ring is a black wooden ring made from an Amazonian palm tree. It is often taken to symbolize a commitment to liberation theology, a Marxist distortion of the faith that emphasizes liberation poverty over liberation from sin. But in shamanistic Pachamama rituals, such as the one conducted in the Vatican Gardens, it has a deeper and darker meaning. Here, gourd rattle and occult spells are used to direct demonic energy to the tukum, which comes to represent a spiritual marriage with the earth goddess or demon. In the Vatican News video recording the ritual, and parenthetically I'd say, which under no circumstances should you or anybody else watch, the shamanist can be seen empowering the tukum with occult spells in her gourd rattle. She then approaches the Pope and puts a black ring on what appears to be the ring finger of his left hand. Just before that, the shamanist had folded a pinch of the soil from the offering bowl to patch him up into the Pope's left hand and then touched clenched fists with him in some kind of communal gesture. When asked to explain these strange happenings, the Vatican retreated into silence. For faithful Catholics, this is simply unacceptable. We are practitioners of a very physical religion who understand that the images, scents, sounds, and even gestures used in our worship services are all freighted with holy meaning. In the same way, we instinctively understand that the images, chants, and gestures used in pagan rituals are laden with unholy, that is, demonic meaning. I pointed out that the cult of the earth goddess or demon is alive and well in, in a rope reaches the rainforest, where animal and even human sacrifice is still practiced. Infanticide is still common among the Yanomami and other Amazonian tribes, and children born handicapped are said to lack a soul and are often sacrificed. Close quote. Let's step back and ask ourselves a very basic question. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a drama played out in a garden. And in that garden we see a devil. We see a fallen woman. And we see a man, the spiritual father, the spiritual head of all mankind, who the fallen woman leads into an intimate relationship with a devil. That's what we're seeing. It's ending just like it began. There's a lot more that could be said there, a lot more. But I'll leave that for you all to meditate on. Let's reflect a little more on a very significant part of the ceremony. Consider the fallen woman cursing that tukumling and placing it on the man's finger. Quote, in shamanistic Pachamama rituals, such as the one conducted in the Vatican Gardens, the tukumling has a deeper and darker meaning. Here, gourd rather than occult spells are used to direct demonic energy the tukum, which comes to represent a spiritual marriage with the earth goddess or demon. That ring, placed on the ring finger of the left hand of the Pope, represents a spiritual marriage between the Pope and the Pachimama, a spiritual marriage between the spiritual head of mankind and a devil. But of course, every properly formed religious, every properly trained priest, every well-informed Catholic is going to think of exactly the same thing when they hear the phrase spiritual marriage. They're going to think of the absolute summit of the spiritual life possible this side of heaven. They're going to think of a person coming into full union with God in this life. The great Father Gergou Lagrange explains that, quote, St. John of the Cross describes the spiritual marriage as the state of perfect love. 
It is a complete transformation of the beloved. God and soul give each other total possession of each other by the union of love consummated in the measure possible on earth. What St. Paul says in Galatians may be applied to it. I live, no, not I, but Christ liveth in me. Galatians 2.20. Close quote. But if the spiritual marriage with God is a complete transformation, full union with God, the absolute summit of the spiritual life possible for death, and gives the man so transformed the right to state truthfully that he lives, but no longer him, that his beloved lives in him, then is it possible that a spiritual marriage with a demon is simply the inverse, a satanic inversion of the mystical marriage of our Lord with his great saints? In other words, does this mean that the person so married is in full union with his spouse, has plunged to the depths of the spiritual life, that he can truthfully state that he lives, but now no longer him, his spouse lives in him, his spouse, the patchy mama that is? And if it does not mean this, then what exactly does it mean? These are serious questions. Why haven't they asked? by the cardinals or bishops. Whatever it may mean, precisely, we've seen, the whole world has seen, a public ceremony broadcast over the entire globe by the Vatican itself, a ceremony in which the Pope was spiritually married to a demon. And the outcry and response? Crickets. Besides Steve Moser, has anyone brought that to the attention of the world? Now that was just the first scene of this week from Mel. It gets worse. On the opening day of the Synod, the Feast of the Holy Rosary, Francis offered Mass in St. Peter's Basilica, after which Francis and the Synod delegates formed a solemn procession with bishops carrying the idol from the Basilica and of the Synod Hall, where it presided in front of Francis' seat. Yeah, you heard that right. Bishops and the Pope solemnly processing an idol around the Vatican on a great feast day of Our Lady. Gets worse. Stephen Moser explains that in the papal mass closing the synod, quote, an offering to Pachamama was brought in by a woman in Amazonian tribal dress, a bowl of soil in which had been planted several plants bearing red flowers. The Pachamama offering customarily requires such soil to be mixed with the blood of a sacrificed animal or even human blood. It is impossible to know what the soil contained in this case, but what it signified is not in question. Such a Pachamama offering is intended as an act of reparation to the earth goddess for the sins that human beings have committed against her by taking from her the fruits of the earth, animal, vegetable, and mineral. In other words, it is the exact pagan imitation of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that are daily offered up on the altars of hundreds of thousands of churches during the holy sacrifice of the Mass in reparation for the sins of the world. Such a pagan Pachimama offering has no place in a Catholic church. And yet, not only was it brought in St. Peter's at the very head of the procession, but it was placed on the high altar itself. Close quote. So by placing this bowl on the high altar during his Mass, the Pope made an exact equivalent between the holy sacrifice of the Mass offered to God the Father and the satanic sacrifice offered to a demon. The golden calf incident pales in comparison to this. And if you don't think that this has immediate and dire consequences for all mankind, 
for each and every one of us, then think again. And the response from almost the entire hierarchy? Crickets. And from the mass of priests? Crickets. And from the mass of religious? Crickets. One thing we certainly did not see was a modern tribe of Levi rising up. And that should give you a good insight into the actual state of things in the church. Truly, the love of man has grown cold. As we read in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 12, And because iniquity hath abounded, the charity of many shall grow cold. Would that it would have ended there. Far from it. The next year, the Pope commemorated the event with those coins. On October 13, 2020, a completely random day, obviously, the Vatican issued two coins. A 10-euro coin with an image of the very, very pregnant Pachimam, or perhaps Gaia. In either event, a pagan earth goddess, a devil, commemorated on a Vatican coin. And a 5-euro coin with St. Peter welcoming the immigrants. The symbolism seems obvious enough. A new, demonic, earth-worshipping religion is about to be given birth, either in or by the Vatican, and all are welcome by the Pope. All are welcome, except, of course, folks like you and I, who, by the grace of God, still have the Catholic faith. And from that perspective, it's a whole lot easier to understand a lot of the more shocking statements of the Pope. Many times he seems to be speaking about this new church that he's serving as the midwife for. There's actually one very important aspect of all this that seems to have been overlooked by all the commentators I've seen. And that is the fact that this devil wasn't just processed in and then out, and that's the all of it. No, it was enthroned. In St. Peter's Basilica, on the high altar, by the Pope. And it ain't going anywhere until it's driven out. That's just how devils are. It's been invited in, blessed and worshipped in the Vatican Garden at a ceremony presided over by the Pope, solemnly processed around the Vatican by the Pope and representatives of the hierarchy, and then solemnly enthroned by the Pope in St. Peter's Basilica. And it ain't leaving. Why would it? It actually has a legal right to stay there. There's only one person in the world with authority to drive it out. But he's the very person who invited that devil in and enthroned it. In a spiritual sense, the Pachimama sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 Just ponder the spiritual consequences of a devil publicly enthroned by the Pope himself in the symbolic heart of the church. Now I started this letter by saying for some years now I've been anticipating that each one of us will face, find himself faced with a decision like that forced upon St. Thomas More and the London clergy on that Monday morning so long ago. And then after witnessing these terrible and almost unbelievable sacrileges, I've been expecting that the powers that be would try to force some compromises regarding the liturgy having to do with the First Commandment, along the lines foreshadowed by the Pachimama plant on the altar, although I thought it would be more subtle than that. But I think that very compromise is actually right before our eyes right now, has been for some time. 
And in all too many cases, the moment of decision has already passed without even so much as a laugh and a shrug. In that regard, there are some important clues in another brilliant LifeSite article by Stephen Mosier. Quote, As an anthropologist, I recognized the statue of a naked and very pregnant woman that was brought into the Vatican. Similar idols were worshipped in the fertility cults of many primitive cultures around the world and still are in the recesses of the Amazon. Not a few such cults demanded human sacrifice as the price of their favors. In the inconversion of the South American Pachimama cult, child sacrifice was practiced. Even in the modern versions of the cult found in Peru, Pachimama is seen not just as a symbolic representation of Mother Earth, but as a pagan deity that one must be careful to propitiate, not anger. Close quote. So this Pachimama deem is not seen as just a symbol of Mother Earth, but a pagan deity that one must be careful to propitiate and not anger. Now reading from one of the articles he links to, quote, The best known ancient South American civilization is that of Inca, who flourished between about 1438 until the Spanish conquest in 1532. During this rather short time period, they established over a hundred ceremonial centers on the summits of many of the highest mountains in the area. The Spanish chroniclers of the Inca reported that at these centers, offerings were made to the mountain gods, food, incense, alcoholic beverages, textiles, and ceramics. In addition, the Inca offered human sacrifices. On the high mountaintops, the Inca sacrificed children. In the Capacocha ceremony, children were sacrificed to the fertility goddess Pachimama, which provided abundant harvests in the following year. Close quote. Other sources tell us that, quote, the Capacocha ceremony involving a ritual sacrifice of children was an important part of the Incan Empire and is interpreted as one of the several strategies used by the imperial Inca state to integrate and control its vast empire. According to historical documentation, the Capacocha ceremony was performed in celebration of key events such as the death of an emperor, the birth of a royal son, a great victory in battle, or an annual and biennial event in the Inca calendar. It was also conducted to stop or prevent droughts, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and epidemics. Close quote. So the Capacocha ceremony, the ritual sacrifice of children in honor of the Pachimama, was an important part of the Incan Empire, and among other things was used by the imperial Inca state to integrate and control its vast empire, was also conducted to stop epidemics. Children were richly sacrificed to this demon so the rulers could control their empire and stop epidemics. Now why do you all think it's so important to use fetal tissue and all these vaccines and the monoclonal antibody treatments? As I wrote a year ago, what we're seeing here for those who have eyes to see is actually nothing new. Modern technologies and being employed in the service of an ancient technique. This will become obvious after we consider a few historical precedents that pretty clearly prefigure our current dilemma. I picked three examples. Each one of these, and there's more, were taken from the 1647 edition of Father Thomas Movenda's monumental work, De Antichristo, on Antichrist. Okay, quote, The Emperor Galerius Maximus, 
who ruled from 305 to 311, ordered that all men, women, and children, and even infants at the breast, should sacrifice and offer oblations to the idols, and that they should be made to taste the execrable offerings, and that the things for sale in the market should be polluted with libations from the sacrifices, and that guards should be stationed before the baths in order to defile with abominable sacrifices those who went in to wash in them. Close quote. Quote, The Emperor Julian the Apostate, ruled from 361 to 363, had all the food put up for sale in the markets in Constantinople secretly corrupted by sprinkling with sacrificial blood, so that in this way it might be polluted. St. Theodore, who had been warned by divine revelation, cautioned the Christians to carefully abstain from all this and to use wheat cooked in oil as their food. Close quote. Quote, Julian the Apostate cast things offered to idols into the fountains of the city of Antioch and into those of Daphne, so that no one could drink of the streams without partaking of the hateful sacrifices. He defiled in the same way everything that was sold in the marketplace, for he had water which had been offered to idols sprinkled on the bread, meat, fruit, herbs, and all the other articles of food. Close quote. Now it's really worth pondering over the fact that these examples are found in Father Melinda's commentary on Apocalypse 13.17. And I quote, And that no man might bite or sell, but he that hath the character or the name of the beast or the number of his name, close quote. The pagan rulers, lusting to bring the masses into fellowship with them and with their diabolical sacrifices, and yet recognizing that many Christians would not willingly partake of items that have been offered to pagan deities, attempted to force everyone into communion with their evil sacrifices and the spirits behind them by contaminating everything possible, food, drinks, herbs, which of course are medicines in those days, etc., Today we're seeing the same agenda cloaked under modern technology. Because these vaccines and monoclonal antibody treatments have been tainted in a fashion analogous to the historical examples we just considered, it would be far more accurate, spiritually speaking, to refer them as potions or malefices. Many of those who are taking these vaccines slash potions slash malefices are quite aware that these have been prepared using tissue derived from abortion insofar as they have not been actually held down and forcibly injected, it is very difficult to see how such individuals are not positively willing in some way to employ the satanic sacrifice of babies to make their own life safer or easier. Any and all claims to being pro-life notwithstanding. Why is this significant? Because the more willing the recipient more open he is to receiving the spiritual effects. The more willing the recipient, the more open he is to receiving the spiritual effects. The spiritual reality is that by being injected with one of these vaccines, the recipient receives an unholy communion via syringe with the human sacrifices used in the preparation. Now, spiritually speaking, this is simply a slightly camouflaged, diabolical inversion of the way that a Catholic enters into communion with our Lord's sacrifice on the cross when he receives the Eucharist worthily. Every time that a properly disposed Catholic receives Holy Communion, he comes into union with a crucified and resurrected Savior and receives the graces and gifts of that union, the spiritual fruits of our Lord's death on the cross, peace and life, virtues and strength. Every time, we receive Holy Communion worthily. We come in union with our Lord and receive the graces and gifts of that union, 
the spiritual fruits of our Lord's death upon the cross, peace and life, virtues and strength. But every time someone receives one of these vaccines, he comes in union with the violent and horrific sacrifices of hundreds of babies, who at the request of at least one of his parents were delivered alive via C-section, then carefully stretched out, gutted out, and sliced apart by the satanic priest slash scientist, his tender little life savagely snuffed out while suffering the most excruciating pain, which is, of course, a description of the 21st century Capricotia ceremony. And by receiving that injection, the recipient also received the spiritual fruits of those sacrifices to the demon. And as time goes on, these will become more apparent, but very likely include the spirits of inchoate rage, pain, and death. That's right. Every time someone receives one of these vaccines, he comes into union with the violent, horrific sacrifices of hundreds of babies. And he also receives the spiritual fruits of those sacrifices to the demon, which very likely include the spirits of inchoate rage, pain, and death. We'll see. Then, as we've seen, the more willing the recipient of these potions, the more open he is to receive their spiritual effects. Fundamentally, then, this is just a question of communion. Who exactly do you want to be in communion with? Christ? Or Satan? The Pachima? It's literally that simple. And many of the people of Israel determined with themselves that they would not eat unclean things. And they chose rather to die than to be defiled with unclean meats. And they would not break the holy law of God, and they were put to death. 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verses 65 and 66. So it's a question of communion. And then when we note that the only country in the world in which the Pachamama has been officially enthroned by its human ruler also has another unique distinction. Quote, Vatican City became the first country to offer COVID-19 vaccines to all of its citizens' employees. Close quote. And we also note that last December 23rd, just in time for Christmas, quote, the Vatican imposed a vaccine mandate, issuing a decree requiring all employees to possess a green pass, proving vaccination against the coronavirus. Close quote. It seems ever more clear that the compromise regarding the first commandment is actually the jab. And yet, in spite of the fact that all the fancy, complicated, lame excuses and all the word games in the world can't conceal the obvious evil of these vaccines and medicines, in all too many cases so far, the moment of decision has passed without so much as a laugh or a shrug. It's certainly not some obscure point of moral theology. The whole abortion-driven fetal tissue industry is intrinsically evil, no matter how long ago any particular baby may have been sacrificed to cannibalize his tissues. The whole abortion-driven fetal tissue industry is intrinsically evil. The whole abortion-driven fetal tissue industry is intrinsically evil, no matter how long ago any particular baby may have been sacrificed to cannibalize his tissues. This is not in the least bit difficult to understand, all the blather about remote cooperation, etc., notwithstanding. Quote, The blood of murdered unborn children cries to God from vaccines and medicines which utilize their remains in any manner whatsoever. 
Close quote, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. The blood of murdered unborn children cries to God from vaccines and medicines which utilize their remains in any manner whatsoever. Before man is life and death, good and evil, that which he shall choose shall be given him. Ecclesiasticus 15.18 It's not accidental, after all, that we are told beforehand that these vaccines were prepared using tissue extracted from the satanic sacrifice of babies. From a certain point of view, this sort of foreknowledge on the part of those who are going to take the jab is actually highly desirable. Now, why on earth would it be highly desirable for the people who are going to take the jab to know beforehand that tissues from sacrificed babies were used in the preparation of these vaccines? Because the fact that they knew ahead of time and took the jabs anyway ensures that they are, in fact, willing participants in this great evil. The fact that they knew ahead of time and took the jabs anyway demonstrates they are not opposed in any meaningful way to the satanic sacrifice of babies to make their own life safer or easier. The fact that they knew ahead of time and took the jabs anyway helps spiritually strengthen their communion with these diabolical sacrifices. And the fact that they knew ahead of time and took the jabs anyway proves that no matter what their misgivings or beliefs might be, they are still willing to compromise and participate in this terrible evil. And that's just a few of the reasons that from a certain point of view, the point of view of the devil, it's highly desirable for the people who are going to take the jab to know beforehand that tissues from sacrificed babies were used in the preparation of these vaccines. It's highly desirable. As anyone with a little life experience knows, it's the first compromise. First compromise. It's the first compromise. It's generally the one that does the end. Okay, but what if someone has already compromised? Well, if someone's already fallen, now is the time to turn back. You need to repent, turn back. Let's be humble. Everybody can make mistakes and everybody can be broken. That's just reality. The key is to bounce back. The key is to repent and jump into Our Lady's arms. The key is to confess and resolve by the grace of God never, ever fall into that trap again. In these kind of situations, the penitent martyr St. James Interchesis is a great example and intercessor. Okay, all that being said, I do believe there will be several stages in this process. The jab being the first stage, the initiation, as it were. I expect this will be followed by some sort of sealing, Basically, sort of a diabolical conversion of the way baptism is followed by confirmation. In this first stage, they've used fear, the social pressure of human respect, and potential loss of income to get people to cooperate. I'm willing to bet that what we've seen so far in terms of pressure to cooperate and compromise is trivial in comparison to what we'll be facing in the not-too-distant future for the ceiling. And if this first test, as it were, is at all indicative of the resistance, the numbers in the next stage will become very, very small. The Son of Man, when he cometh, shall he find, thank you, faith on earth. Luke 18, 8. Those of us in the church militant need to pray for an immense charity rooted in a very, very deep and immovable faith. I believe we're about to start the climb up Calvary and we're simply going to have to rely on heaven. 
our Lord, our Lady, St. John the Beloved, St. Mary Magdalene, of course, St. Michael. Okay, let's take a look at what I think will trigger this next test, this ceiling. It'd take a book, not a letter, to go through all this. We're just going to sketch it in outline. Let's start with a mysterious passage in chapter 2 of St. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Here's the situation. The Thessalonians had somehow got the idea that the second coming of Christ was at hand. But St. Paul reminds them that this could not happen until the great apostasy and the appearance of the man of sin, the Antichrist. And he explains that even before the Antichrist rises up, something must first be taken away. Now in the Dewey Reims translation, this something that must be first taken away is translated as that which withholdeth, or he who now holdeth. Quote, And now you know what withholdeth, that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity already worketh, only that he who now holdeth do hold, until he be taken out of the way. Close quote, Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Quote, St. Paul in this passage uses two expressions. He says the hindrance which holdeth, and who holdeth. He speaks of it as a thing and as of a person. At first sight there appears to be a difficulty whether that which hinders the revelation of the man of sin be a person or a system. For in the one place it is spoken of in the neuter as a system. In the other case it is spoken in the masculine as a person. Close quote. Cardinal Manning. So this restrainer seems to be a person or a system. What exactly is this person or system restraining? What exactly is this person or system restraining? This person or system is restraining the mystery of iniquity, which refers to lawlessness, and ultimately to the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Quote, this wicked one shall be a lawless person who shall introduce disorder, sedition, tumult, and revolution, both in the temporal and spiritual order of the world, so that that which will hinder his development must necessarily be the principle of order, the law of submission, the authority of truth and of right. Close quote, Cardinal Manning. So this person or system is referred to as a restrainer because he or it restrains outbreak of disorder and lawlessness in both the temporal order, we could also call that the order of the state, the order of society, the political order, uh, so the restrainer here, it restrains the outbreak of disorder and lawlessness in both the order of society, the temporal order, and in the spiritual order. So in terms of this restrainer, we'll consider three possibilities, each of which I believe to be true, which might seem confusing until you see how they all fit together. Number one, St. Michael. Scriptural commentators have seen St. Michael playing the role of the, quote, restrainer on the basis of Daniel chapters 10 through 12. And indeed, there is evidence that his activity was understood in precisely those terms. The key to unlocking the mysterious language of 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7 is found in a previously unnoticed contemporary interpretation of Daniel 12, 1. In that interpretation, Michael is removed just prior to the outbreak of the tribulation at the end of the world. Close quote. Okay, but how does that work grammatically? In other words, why would St. Michael be referred to uh, both in the mask and in the neuter genders? Because Greek, which St. Paul was writing in, Greek can use the neuter gender to refer to a person what is emphasizing an exceptional quality of the individual. In this case, the neuter gender refers to St. Michael with an emphasis on, quote, his restraining activity, close quote. And the masculine refers to St. Michael as a person. So St. Michael the Archangel is the restrainer. Number two, the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire. In his book on the Antichrist, Father Melvende has an entire section, 126 pages long in very fine print, 
dealing with the question of the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire. Using the writings of the Fathers and Ecclesiastical Authors, he demonstrates that the Roman Emperor as the person and the Roman Empire as the system act as the restrainer. A few quotes will suffice. Quote, the consensus of the Fathers is that the Antichrist will not come unless first the Roman Empire is overthrown and abolished. Close quote. Tertullian states that from the very earliest ages of the Church, it was a custom of Christians to offer public prayers for the maintenance and longevity of the Roman Empire, even though it was pagan and hostile to the Christian religion, because they were persuaded that as long as the Empire stood, it would hold back the Antichrist and the end of the world. And as we'll see, those prayers remained in the Roman Missal until 1955. Quote, In the Apostles' letter to the Thessalonians, who is holding and what is he holding? Without a doubt, the Roman Caesar is holding the Empire, he does not speak of only one man, for example, Nero, but of all the Caesars of the Roman Empire. Close quote. Does this mean immediately after the fall of the Roman Empire and death of the last Caesar, the Antichrist was to appear? No, as Cajetan explains, treating of 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and then the wicked one will be revealed. Quote, it is not certain whether then affirms the time which immediately follows. For St. Paul does not say, and then immediately, but he says, and then, when the Roman Empire is removed. The wicked one will be revealed. Close quote. Now, are we supposed to take this seriously? How could the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire possibly play such a role? After all, didn't the Roman, Roman Empire fall in the West in AD uh, 476 and in the East in AD 4, uh, 1453? Yes, but later on, both sides of the Empire, West and East, were renewed. The Empire still stood in the East, when in AD 800, Pope St. Leo III renewed the empire in the West by crowning Blessed Charlemagne, who from that point forward became the Holy Roman Emperor, and the lands he ruled became the Holy Roman Empire. The Good Friday prayer for the emperor, which could be found in the Roman Missal till 1955, makes it perfectly clear how the Holy Roman Emperor, later the Austrian, Austrian-Hungarian Emperor, and their respective empires were seen. We're going to skip the details on the tra- transition because this letter is getting ridiculously long. Quote, let us pray also for our most Christian emperor, that our Lord and God may, for our perpetual peace, subject all barbarous natures to him. Let us pray. Let us kneel down. Arise. Almighty eternal God, in whose hands are the powers of all men and the rights of all kingdoms, graciously look down upon the Roman Empire, that the nations that confide in their fierceness may be repressed by the power of thy right hand. Through our Lord. Amen. Close quote. And the empire still stood in the West when in 1547 the Patriarch of Constantinople, Jeremiah II, crowned Ivan IV, the Tsar, Caesar, and Grand Duke of all Rus. And in the coronation document stated, quote, The great Russian Tsardom, more pious than all previous kingdoms, is the third Rome, Constantinople being the second Rome, close quote. And quote, The point to be taken is that Christians with more affection for Constantinople than for Rome have accepted Moscow as third Rome. This means after 1457, there are two representatives of Rome, of Caesarean Rome, of the Restrainer, in the world, in Vienna and in Moscow. Close quote. And their matter stood until both empires were destroyed. In the East, in 1917, the great Mushan Tsar, Sardom was destroyed, and Tsar Nicholas, the last Eastern Emperor, and his family were murdered. In the West, in 1918, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was broken into pieces. On April 1, 1922, the last Roman Emperor Blessed Kaiser Karl von Habsburg died. So the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire are the restrainers. Number three, the 
Pope in the Catholic Church. By his study of the fathers and approved theologians, Cardinal Manning, whom we quoted earlier, referring to the restrainer as both a person and a system, concludes that the restrainer is the Pope. I differ slightly with his conclusion as to the system. He argues it was Christian society. Using the arguments he employs, one can make a stronger case than the fact is the Catholic Church. You are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.13 So the Pope and the Catholic Church are the restrainers. Now how is it possible that St. Michael the Archangel, the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire, and the Pope and the Catholic Church could all be the restrainers? It doesn't seem to make any sense. In order to see how all these three possibilities could possibly fit together, we have to briefly discuss proper relationship between the state and the Catholic Church. Quote, The Catholic position has always been what Pope Gelasius described in the late 5th century as the doctrine of the two swords. The state, the temporal order, is a natural society over which government presides with a natural authority, exercising that authority for the common good of the community it rules. This is the temporal sword. The church, on the other hand, is a supernatural society, which presides with a supernatural authority over souls, exercising that authority for the spiritual welfare of the community, both as a contribution to the common good and so that all its members may attain their final end, which is eternal life with God. This is a spiritual sword. Close quote. Another important detail, quote, one sword, moreover, ought to be under the other, and the temporal authority to be subjected to the spiritual. Close quote, Pope Boniface VIII. The relationship between the two swords was even expressed liturgically in the coronation of the Holy Roman Emperor. In fact, the most significant liturgical expression of the relationship between the Pope and the Emperor as the servant of the Church and representative of the Christian people could be seen on the day of Emperor Charles V's coronation by Pope Clement VII in 1530, when the new emperor, vested as a deacon, actually acted as the deacon at the papal mass, quote, presenting the Pope, the Pat, and the host, and offering the chalice together with him. Close quote. It's extraordinary. So what does any of this have to do with it when speaking of the restrainer, whether as a person or as a system? Remember that the role of the restrainer is to restrain lawlessness and ultimately the rise of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And this restraining took place in two orders. In the temporal order, remember by this we mean the order of the state, the order of society, the political order. In the temporal order, the Roman Empire, whether in the east or west, restrained the uprising of lawlessness and the man of sin insofar as it established order, the law of submission and authority of truth and right. The same could be said about the Roman Emperor himself. Consider again those Good Friday prayers we heard. Let us pray also for our most Christian Emperor that our Lord and God may for our perpetual peace subject all barbarous nations to him. So there's the prayer for the Emperor. Here's the Empire. Gracious look down upon the Roman Empire that the nations that confide in their fierceness may be repressed by the power of thy right hand. But the Eastern Sardom and the Sardom have been gone since 1917, the Western Empire since 1918, and the Kaiser since April 1st, 1922, a date I believe is significant. And since that time, what have we seen in the social order? Rising lawlessness, disorder, sedition, tumult, and revolution. Likewise, in the spiritual order, the Pope and the Catholic Church throughout the world restrained the uprising of lawlessness and the man of sin insofar as they established spiritual order, the law of submission, authority of truth and of right. But in the spiritual order of the world, what have we seen? Rising lawlessness, disorder, tumult, and revolution in the church. The infidelity of massive numbers of Catholics, the collapse of attendance at Mass, sacrilegious reception of the sacraments, most especially sacrilegious communions, gross infidelity to church's teachings across the whole spectrum, and notably in regards to marriage, contraception, sexual morality in general, 
In short, what we've seen is liturgical, catechetical, and moral chaos. And now we have a pope who exemplifies lawlessness, disorder, tumult, and revolution. So how does St. Michael fit in this picture? St. Michael is the guardian angel of the Pope, guardian angel of the Catholic Church. He was the guardian angel of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne, the very first Holy Roman Emperor, made a pilgrimage with his army to Mount St. Michel and asked St. Michael to be the protector of the empire and consecrated himself and his empire to St. Michael. I presume the thing was the same in the East, both with respect to the Tsar and the Tsardom, and uh, if this was a book and not a letter, I would have done the research. <laughs> St. Michael then has acted as the restrainer in the temple order, assisting acting through the agency of the emperor and the Roman Empire, helping them establish and maintain order, helping them suppress lawlessness, disorder, sedition, tumult, and revolution. But given that both the emperor and the empire have been abolished, given that he no longer has these instruments to work with and through, he no longer acts as a restrainer in the temple order, and the results are obvious. It is also true that St. Michael has acted as the restrainer of the spiritual order, assisting and acting through the agency of the Pope and the Catholic Church, helping them establish and maintain order, helping them suppress lawlessness, disorder, sedition, tumult, and revolution. But given the reality of the liturgical, catechetical, and moral revolution of the Church and the apostasy of massive numbers of Catholics, all exterior signs that, for the most part, the human element of the Church militant, be they cardinals, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, or laity, are not interested in any meaningful way in the things of God. And given that he cannot force the free will of men, the Holy Archangel has very little to work with, so to speak, amongst the Catholic people. If the salt lose its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing any more but to be cast out and be trodden on by men. Matthew 5.13 Adding to that the fact we now have a Pope, a person that exemplifies and tirelessly promotes lawlessness, disorder, tumult, and revolution. St. Michael's role as a restraint in a spiritual order has almost been reduced, as it were, to standing aside as he had to do in the order of society, the temporal order. So given that this Pope has been in office for nine years, what is holding back the birth of his new anti-church? What is holding back the man of sin? Why hasn't he appeared publicly on the world stage yet? To my way of thinking, these questions point towards a role being played by Benedict XVI, even after his resignation. There are a lot of thoughtful people who have, I think quite correctly, noted some extremely strange things about his situation. For example, he's kept the white cassock, his papal ring, his name, his title, your holiness. He's chosen the historically unprecedented title of Pope Emeritus. He continues to reside in the Vatican. In his last general audience of February 27, 2013, he stated that, quote, there can no longer be a return to the private sphere. My decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. I do not return to private life. I'm not abandoning the cross, but remaining in a new way at the side of the crucified Lord. I no longer bear the power of office for governance of the church, but in the servants of prayer I remain, so to speak, in the closure of St. Peter. Close quote. One prominent journalist reports that, quote, most recently the archbishop in closest contact with him, George Gonswain, has told us that Benedict has by no means abandoned the office of Peter, but on the contrary has made it an expanded ministry with an active member and a contemplative member, almost a shared ministry. Close quote. In response to this admittedly mysterious and unprecedented situation, many thoughtful people have concluded that Benedict is still the Pope, and that therefore Francis is an imposter and anti-Pope. This I can't agree with. Benedict refers to himself as, quote, a former Pope, close quote, and says that, quote, it is completely clear there's only one Pope, close quote, and I think we have to take him at his word. 
If you want a very balanced treatment of the question whether Benedict is still the Pope, you can do no better than Stephen O'Reilly at the Roma Locuta Est blog. That being said, as Benedict himself seems to indicate, as well as Archbishop Gonswine, that he has in some mysterious way indeed retained some aspect of the papacy. In my opinion, I want to emphasize that's what it is, it's my opinion, Benedict was asked or told to continue to perform the office as it were of the restrainer. In other words, the Pope Emeritus, this gentle, frail, 94-year-old, is the instrument through which St. Michael is still working. As evidence of this possibility, consider the fact that after the Amazon Synod, Pope Francis was fully expected to allow for bishops in the Amazon region to ordain married deacons as priests. Since some 185 bishops at the Synod requested this, it looked like it was a done deal. But the whole proposal crumbled to dust when the news broke that Benedict had co-authored a book defending clerical celibacy. If this be true that Benedict is still acting as this trainer, then when he dies, when he's taken out of the way, he who now holds to hold will be taken out of the way, then St. Michael will also stand aside. He will also be taken out of the way. And at that time, all hell will break loose. And then the wicked one shall be revealed, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Might be a very good time to have your spiritual house in order. You all might want to be, stay prayed up. Make sure that your moment of decision doesn't pass with a laugh and a shrug. Make sure your moment of decision doesn't pass by with a laugh and a shrug. Know my prayers for you and send in my blessing. Signed to me. Postscript. Quote, As the time of the coming of the Antichrist draws near, there will first come a departure of all the kingdoms from the Roman Empire, then the churches from obedience to the apostolic see, and lastly the faithful from the faith. Close quote. Engelbert Abbott of Admontensis. Quote, Before the coming of Antichrist, there will be a threefold departure in the world. First, there will be a separation of all men from the Roman Empire. Secondly, there will be a departure of many Christians from the Catholic faith. Thirdly, there will be a separation of many churches from the Roman Pontiff. Close quote. Augustinus Triumphus. Quote, All nations will depart and fall away, both from the Roman Empire and then from the Roman Pontiff and the Church. Close quote. Cornelius Alapidae.